Good morning. Um, thank you for being here today. It's really awesome to see you all again here for the third week in a row. It's great not to just talk to a camera, but to be here in the presence of my people. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open those to John chapter 1, and today we will read verses 35 through 42. And I'm using the New American Standard Bible version if you're curious, and I will encourage you all to follow along. John chapter 1 verse 35 says, And again, the next day, John was standing with his two disciples, and he looked at Jesus, and as he walked said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. One of them heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found at first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall now be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Lord, allow us to be captivated by your greatness, driving us to our knees and to follow you at all cost. Amen. When is the time that you encountered your hero? Maybe at one time you met an actor or a politician, maybe not, or an author or an athlete that was your hero. Allow me to introduce you mine. This was my hero as a young man growing up. If you see this, there's one name on this book. I think I probably purchased every one of his books growing up. But as a young Christian, he was my hero. The name on this book is Dwight Pentecost, and some of you probably recognize that name. But he published books that basically gave me an insatiable appetite and knowledge of the New Testament. Gary Hogan, my mentor here, the former pastor, spoke very highly of Dr. Pentecost and told lots of stories of him in seminary. Dr. P was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, wrote books on the New Testament, and he was one of the prime reasons why I went to DTS. And I remember the very first time I met Dr. P. My wife and I were visiting DTS on something called Focus Day. It was a day when prospective students from all over the world, all over America, would fly into Dallas to just check out the seminary and to see if they wanted to go there. And of course, they had all the big guys in evangelical roles. Chuck Swindoll spoke that day. And I remember, as a young man, I think I was probably 25 at that time, I was just mesmerized by everything. By the smell of the buildings, of all things. I still remember the way that building smelled. I was just enthralled by the buildings, by the energy in the air, by these famous preachers, by these famous professors that were sitting before me, and I had basically all of the books they ever published. And I remember just standing with all these students, prospective students, trying to, just seeing all their insecurity, trying to be the biggest minnow in a large pond. And then in the midst of this energy, we were standing in the foyer, and I saw this little old man sitting at the water fountain. And I went up to him, I tapped him on the shoulder, and I said, are you Dr. Pentecost? He said, yes. And I remember shaking his hand. You know, have you ever met your hero? You're kind of doing this number right here, and then you don't wash your hand for at least a week. 
And I remember just seeing there, and I was a bit taken back because Dr. P wasn't quite what I had dreamt of. He was maybe five feet tall, very quiet, unassuming, but I was just so excited to meet this man who I claimed to be my hero. Yet there was great irony, maybe even tragedy in that moment, that I was more excited to meet my hero than to learn about the hero. I was more excited to meet a man who published books than to learn about the man who published or wrote the book. But this temptation of making not the main thing the main thing is the main issue in the heart of every Christian. Because you know what I find to be sad is that we are often more excited to see our heavenly heroes or our humanly heroes than we are to learn about our heavenly heroes. We as Christians in this culture are often more excited to go to a basketball game or to watch a movie than we are to read our Bibles or to go to church. And the churches that capitalize on the entertainment factor of our culture are probably some of the largest in the world. But church should not be here to entertain people and to make us excited. The church should be here to have a place where we can come together and worship our Savior and to glorify the Lord and to unpack the scriptures so that we are sent out to the ends of the earth. I find it a little tragic that we in our culture can value entertainment more than truth. But today, the disciples do not make this same mistake. They make plenty of other mistakes, especially this guy named Simon Peter, as you know. But today they do not make the same mistake of seeking out Jesus to be entertained or to be healed, but rather that they are excited or ecstatic to discover this man named Jesus, that he is the Messiah, that he is the truth, and their excitement boils over for the world to see. So if you have your Bible again, go to John chapter 1, and we will go from verses 35 through 42. And today I want to do something a little bit different. I actually just want to make three simple observations. Because the question I'm really answering today is, how do the disciples react to Jesus? And I see three basic observations. I'm going to begin by reading verses 35 and 41, not the whole collection, just those two verses. And I want you to notice what these two verses have in common. Verse 35 of chapter 1. Again, notice that word again, paleen. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus, and as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And then his two disciples heard him speaking, and then they abandoned John and followed Jesus. Verse 41. And one of them, Andrew, found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. What do these two reactions have in common? Just on the most basic level, observation number one is their excitement. They are excited to see Jesus. They kind of go wild to a degree, because two of them are sitting there with their mentor named John the Baptist, and then they see this man named Jesus, whose Old Testament name was Yeshua, or Joshua. They see this man named Jesus, and then all of a sudden they abandon their mentor to follow a man that they have never met. And now one of them, named Andrew, then runs home, after that finds his brother named Simon to tell him that they have found the Messiah. 
Now, a quick note on their excitement. In the original language, it is very colorful. When it says in verse 41 that we have found, the question I have is, who is the we? The W-E. Who is the we there? We could say that it could be Andrew and Simon, it could be Andrew and the other disciples, but I think it says that we as a nation of Israel, we have found who? We have found the Messiah. That word have found is a Greek verb, and I'm going to give you a little TMI. It is a perfect tense verb. Perfect tense tells me a past event with continuing ongoing results. So what does that mean? That the nation of Israel has, in the past ongoing, been continually looking for the Messiah, and that man's name is Jesus. Jesus, friends, what does their excitement reveal? That a man that they have never met before, their excitement reveals that Jesus, in a sense, is their hero. He is the man that they have been looking for. He is the person that their great-grandparents, their grandparents, and their parents have talked about for millennia. Every Passover, every feast, every Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, I know they didn't have those, okay, but every time they got together around the dinner table or the, the fireside, They talked about this man named the Messiah. And then all of a sudden, Andrew and Peter and the other disciple are fortunate enough to find him. And notice how their excitement controls their behavior. What do they do instantly? They abandon their mentor, John the Baptist, but then they go and tell others about Jesus. Even John the Baptist is so excited about Jesus that he tells the world for three straight days of his presence. Verse 19 is day one, verse 29 is day two, and verse 35 is day three. Three days in a row, John the Baptist exclaims to the world that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Well, what else do you see? How else do they react? Observation number two is that they reveal predetermined ideas. Each disciple reveals a predetermined idea of who Jesus is. I mean, notice, Andrew calls him what? He calls him the Messiah. Philip calls him the prophet. Nathaniel calls him rabbi. But then all of a sudden he realizes he's wrong, and then he adds two other ones, the Son of God and the King of Israel. But what's the irony here? They act, the disciples act like they have known Jesus his entire life, but they have never even met the man. That the moment they see this man named Jesus, all of the titles and hopes and dreams and legends of their entire race is realized in the word becoming flesh. And what does all this tell you? That they have been looking for Jesus for a very long time. I want to make a quick observation. I want you to notice in verses 35 through 51, I'm going to go and take that span for just a second. If you notice in these verses, there are six additional truths about Jesus that they unveil to us. Truth number one is in verse 39. Excuse me, verse 30. Yeah, verse 39. Excuse me, verse 36. It says this, that Jesus is... The Lamb of God. He knows that first phrase, behold. What does that mean? It means to look up, put down your cast nets, put down your cell phones, quit being distracted, and behold this man named Jesus, that he is the Lamb of God. Now, in our American culture, this 
title, this name of Lamb of God makes little sense and has very little significance, but in that day and age, the significance is just absolutely massive. That Jesus is the Passover Lamb. He is the one that has come that will be sacrificed so that God would pass over our sins previously, currently, and forever committed. That here is the Passover Lamb, the all-sufficient one that not only bears the sins of each individual Jewish family, but bears the sins of the entire world. What else do you see? Truth number two is that he is the Messiah in verse 41. The word Messiah here, I'll give you a little bit more TMI, is a transliterated Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is actually Meshua. The word Meshua means the anointed one. Now, this is a very popular term in the New Testament of the Messiah. Every time you see the word Christ, it means Messiah. Those two are basically synonymous. But what I found interesting, I did a little word study on the word Meshua in the Old Testament. It's only used 38 times in the entire Old Testament. And usually means to the anointed one of a priest or a king. But yet its its significance is not correlated to its frequent use. To a Jew, the idea of the Messiah is best reflected in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 through 26, that the Messiah is the one that they have been starving to see. And it designates that Jesus is the one, the great deliverer who promised by God. But their idea of the Messiah is incomplete. Their idea of the Meshua is incomplete. They thought that Jesus, as the Messiah, was the deliverer of Roman bondage. But the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, came not to free them from Roman bondage, but to free all from the bondage of sin and death. What does Romans chapter 8 verse 1 say? Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Messiah came to free us from the bondage of sin and death. Truth number three is found in verse 45, that Jesus is the prophet. What does Philip say? He says, him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, that Jesus is the prophet that is prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. We talked about that last week. Truth number four is that Jesus is the rabbi, the rabbi. But if you notice, Nathaniel calls him rabbi or teacher, But in my opinion, that reveals Nathaniel's lack of faith. That in his mind, that Jesus is only a teacher. He's just another religious person or priest or maybe above a Pharisee even. But obviously Nathaniel changes his mind when Jesus actually prophesies. And Nathaniel calls him two more things. Truth number five is that Jesus is the Son of God. Huyas Theu. Jesus, being the Son of God, reveals Jesus' eternal distinction from the Father, yet that he also possesses the same attributes, performs the same works, and is of equal honor to the Father. And then truth number six is that Jesus is the King of Israel. That not only will Jesus rule over Israel, but that Jesus is the eternal fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me just put it all in a nutshell for you. Just in the first chapter alone of John, how many different titles, how many different truths of Jesus have we seen? So let's answer the question, just for the sake of 
simplicity. Who is Jesus? According to John chapter 1, I see 14 things. 14 things. That Jesus is God. He is creator. He is life. He is light. He is the God-man. He is the earthly embodiment of God's glory. He is God's grace. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Messiah, the teacher, the prophet, the Son of God, and the only begotten of God, and the King of all of Israel and all. Let me just say that again. If you didn't catch it, I'm going to say it one more time. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. He is creator. He is life. He is light. He is the God-man. The Word became flesh. He is the earthly embodiment of God's glory. He is God's grace. He is the Lamb, the Messiah, the Teacher, the Prophet, the Son of God, the Only Begotten, and the King of Israel. Can I get an amen to that one? That's who Jesus is. All in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And why did Jesus come? We know in chapter 1 verse 9 that he came to enlighten every man. But he also became, came because of all 14 of these reasons. I think it's a little misconstrued that we have, can I just be real? That we have a very man-centric idea of the Gospel. We think this, that Jesus only came because of you and me. Jesus came for you and me, but he also came to, out of obedience to the Father and a love for you and me. He came to die, but he also came to de- demonstrate the glory of God and the grace of God. And Jesus' love for us led him to die on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. What does it say in Romans chapter 5, verse 8? That God demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What manner of love is this? Friends, has that message worn off? That God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, the depths and the riches and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. How do the disciples react to Jesus? Number one, they are excited. Number two, they have predetermined ideas of who Jesus is. And then these two observations lead inevitably to a third observation. Notice it with me in verses 39 and 40. I'll back up to verse 38 for the context. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi... Where are you staying? And Jesus said, come and you will see. Verse 43. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. Verse 46. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. When the disciples encounter Jesus, what decision are they faced with? Observation number three. They follow. They follow. Catch this. They follow a man that they have never met before. That they cast down their nets. They walk away from what they were doing to follow a man named Joshua. A very pretty common name in that day and age. They follow a man named Jesus, even though they have never met him before. What is it about that man from Nazareth? Even in today's culture, when people encounter Jesus, they have two two choices and only two choices. They either follow or they reject. Those are the only two choices that when we encounter Jesus in the scriptures, delaying it, 
putting it off until later is a form of rejection. When I was a young lad, when I was a teenager, I told myself that I would get serious about my faith when I would have a family. That is a rejection of the Messiah. Because what I'm really saying is that Jesus is only good for part of my life. Friends, Jesus deserves more than part of our lives, more than just part of our time, but he deserves all. If Jesus sacrificed all, then he deserves all in return. When encountering Jesus, one must follow or reject. Just think about the disciples themselves. They abandoned everything to follow a man that they have never even met. They gave up a family business, a profitable career. They forwent the opinions of other people. They even gave up their former identity. Did you, did you catch the name change? That Simon, that word Simon, his name means quick to hear. Okay, And we know Peter is also quick to speak, right? But his name means quick to hear. And how does Jesus change his name? He changes his identity, and now Peter's name is Rock. When the disciples encounter Jesus, they, we see their excitement, their predetermined ideas, and we see that they follow Jesus. But let's just answer an interesting theological point. When they actually follow Jesus, when they put down their nets and they follow him, do they become a Christian? When the disciples follow Jesus, do they become a Christian? The answer is no. Because that means they did something to earn it. The gospel, the good news, euangelion, the good news of Jesus Christ is by grace, through grace, given to us by the instrument of grace and as a grace-filled gift. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, what does it say in chapter 2, verse 11? They follow him in chapter 1, but in chapter 2, verse 11, what does it say? And the disciples believed. So catch this lightning bolt that hit me this week. It just kind of... They followed Jesus before faith, and then they followed Jesus after faith. They followed before, and then they followed after I'm not sure where you are on your faith journey. Maybe you are still checking things out with this Christian, th- Christian thing, trying to figure out who Jesus is. Maybe you have some information about him. Maybe you think you're a Christian, but you're really not sure. And maybe you just don't really know him personally, have a relationship with you. For you, my apple, if you're unsure about this Jesus thing, this Christian thing, this church thing, then my application for you is quite simple. Application number one is really come and see. That's what Jesus tells the disciples. Before they place their faith in Him, He tells them just kind of tag along. I would encourage you, if you don't have a church that you belong to, that you fit in, I would encourage you to just kind of come here and fit in and come and see. I hope that you would not find condemnation. I think you will not. You won't find that we judge you for the amount that you know. I would encourage that you would come and see, interview our lives, interview ourselves, unpack the scripture together. But if you are a Christian, then I'm going to answer the opposite side of the coin. If you are a Christian, then my application for you is to follow. And following Jesus Christ 
is more than reading the Bible on occasion and is more than just showing up to church. Following Jesus Christ is holistic. That every part of your being should be in submission and obedience to Him. We have this false idea in our American culture that it's good and it's okay if we just tithe a little bit and we show to church, show up to church, but it's really Christianity is so much more than that. You miss out on so many things about the Christian life if that is your perspective of what it means to follow Him. There's so much more to Christianity than just to put your two cents in. Christianity is a, is a life. It is about a holistic perspective of surrendering all. What does Jesus say in the Gospel? Anyone that follows Him must what? Must deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow Him. Take up, a, take up a cross, an object of humiliation, forsaking their old life to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. My application to you is to follow, and then my application number three is simply a question. If following Jesus means following Him with everything we have, then what is holding you back? What is that one area of your life that isn't following Jesus? I'm just going to list a few things that we as Christians struggle with in our attempt to follow the Lord. First is our money. We say that our money is our money, and realistically it isn't. That every dollar that we have been given is a gift from God that He has entrusted to us. What holds us back from following Him is sometimes our career that we really don't want to jump over the fence because we're very nice and comfortable. Sometimes we don't follow Jesus with our mouth, that we just want to say what we want to say and don't want to be judged for it. Sometimes what causes us not to follow Jesus is our schedule. We just want to do what we want to do. We very rarely, and I'm speaking to this guy, we very rarely get up in the morning, put on our shoes, and then ask Jesus, what would you have for me today? Another area that causes us not to follow Jesus is our sin. Sin can be an area that we keep from Jesus. And if, if we are truly honest, we really like harmatia. It makes us sometimes feel good. It allows us to relax. But sin in secret is poison to our souls. Sin is a bungee cord on the road to Jesus. You can stretch it. But the further you go without repentance, the more it slows you down. What, uh, what else do we hide? What else causes us not to follow Jesus? Our insecurities. Friends, we are more concerned about what other people think of us than what our Savior has already said about us. Can I say it that way? We are more concerned about what other people say about us than what the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, has already proclaimed that we are. Friends, our, our identity, our security, our insecurities should not be placed in the world, should not be replaced in the opinions and the statuses of others. Our security, our sense of self-worth should be placed in what Christ has called us, that we are a new creation, that we are a child of God, that we have been set free from the chains of sin and death, that no sin condemns us because the blood of Christ has washed us clean. Another area that holds us back is our faith. Sometimes we really just don't trust God. 
God, I trust you to this point, but nothing more. And then we don't trust God enough to even go and share to other people about Jesus Christ and the gospel that he has freely given us. What is an area of your life that is holding you back from really following Jesus holistically? We all have it. Let's not fool ourselves. That is what my homework for you this week. I want to take that question. I want you to go home and I want you to pray about it. And on the back of your notes sheet, I want you to put an answer. What is that one thing that is holding you back? Friends, my final, my hope, my prayer for all of us is that nothing would slow us down from following Jesus Christ. That the sin that we struggle with, the insecurities that we have, nothing would chain us back. I pray that you would cut the chains that hold you back. I pray that you would pursue Jesus Christ with reckless, holistic abandonment. That you would forsake the opinions of the world and the prestige of man to follow Jesus to any destination he has for you. If you're a non-believer, if you're unsure of this Jesus thing, then I would encourage you to come and see. If you're a Christian, though, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then follow him. Cut the chains that are holding you and weighing you down. Friends, let us go boldly, encountering Jesus every day, excited to tell others, and let us follow Jesus despite all the costs. That was me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Uh, it's just really nice to be here. It's really nice to be with my friends, that we can just worship you, we can fellowship together, that we can unpack your word. And I thank you, Lord, so many times we beat up on the disciples and we see all of their inadequacies, and they had plenty. But Lord, I thank you for the, the sincerity and the excitement that they have to follow you. And, uh, and just an example they give to us that imperfect people can follow a perfect Savior. Lord, I pray that we would not be fearful, but that we would go into the world with the message of the gospel to the ends of the world. And that we would go and make disciples of our co-workers, of our friends, of our family, of our children. And that we would proclaim you, glorify you to all we see. Lord, you are great. And you are majestic. And I thank you that you have paid for my sin. What a magnificent truth the gospel is. And I pray that that would drive us in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would bless lunch, bless the food. Uh, I pray that it would be a time of fellowship and a time of communication of details, but also just thanking a man that has served here for over 20 years. Lord, I thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.